I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. We're doing something a little bit different today and featuring two guests. Our first guest is Richard Fontaine, the CEO of the Center for New American Security and a former foreign policy advisor to Senator John McCain. He also served at both the State Department and the National Security Council. Our second guest is Mira Rapp Hooper, Director of Indo-Pacific Strategy at the National Security Council. We decided to flex our age limit a little bit and bring on two guests so that we can explore the topic of mentorship in the field of foreign policy. I just wanted to break in and note that all of our guests are speaking in a personal capacity unless otherwise stated, especially those who work in government like Mira Rapp Hooper. Richard, Mira, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us and for relaxing your age requirement. <laughs> Richard, uh, let's start with you. I'm curious when you first met Mira and why you asked her to come on this episode with you. I met Mira first when she was at the think tank CSIS and she applied for a job at my think tank, CNAS. And I had heard about Mira. One, I had been aware of some of her writings and things like that. But the folks who were running our Asia program at CNES said there was one person that they wanted to hire. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, how about a big extensive search and all these other things? And they said, there's one person. If we could get that one person, it would be worth it. And then I met and talked to Mira and understood what they were talking about. So. It's a conceit to say that I've mentored Mira here and there along the years because in a lot of ways she's mentored me. And this is at least a two-way street, if not stronger in the other direction. But to find someone as creative and able to get things done in and out of government as Mira is a lucky thing. And so that's why I thought we might have fun talking. Mira, how did you end up at CSIS in the first place? And what made you interested in foreign policy? Great question, actually. Um, Well, first of all, I'll start by expressing my deep gratitude to Richard, who absolutely is a mentor to me. And it's precisely his sort of self-effacing, laid-back attitude and approach to the profession that makes him so accessible and in many ways appealing to those of us who have seen his career, who respect him so much and who benefit from his ideas, as well as his support and guidance. And I really would not be in my dream job today if it was not for all of the support that Richard has given me over the years. I found my way into the think tank world and quickly to Richard's doorstep um, out of academia, actually, where I had been a PhD student in international relations and political science. I'd studied nuclear weapons, international security, increasingly become focused on East Asia. But knew by the time I wound up at the end of my PhD that I did not want to become an academic political scientist. So I was lucky to meet a wonderful scholar practitioner by the name of Mike Green, who hired me at CSIS to run a new program called the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative, which was shedding light on maritime security issues in Asia. And I increasingly got hooked on doing policy facing scholarship thinking, writing, um, focused on Asia. And that, as I mentioned quickly, led me to CNAS, where I had the immense privilege of working with Richard. 
So the two of you co-wrote an article together in 2016 about how Beijing views China's role in the global world order. Would love to hear the backstory there. How did you guys decide to write that article together? And also curious how you think your views have aged over time. Mira, do you want to start? Happy to kick it off and I'll, I'll give a little more sort of mentoring uh, background here too. When I first met Richard through the interview process at CNIS, I'd ha- at CNIS, I'd had several close friends say to me, you know, you have to meet Fontaine, you're going to love him. Of course, I was sort of well familiar and, and a huge uh, fangirl of CNAS's other leader, Michelle Flournoy, and I had wonderful things about Richard too. I self-identify as a Democrat. And so I had sort of thought my most like-minded partner would be Michelle in many ways, and I would follow her as my North Star. And of course, Michelle is an extraordinary leader, um, and I absolutely benefited so much. I learned so much from her. But one of the things I was struck by right away, like literally in my interview with Richard, was how much we seem to think alike and how the way he approached the world, the way he identified problems, uh, the types of questions he was interested in seemed to resonate with my own. And it was kind of an immediate lesson for me in what CNAS is when it identifies itself as a bipartisan organization. Because I ended up thinking of Richard not uh, simply as someone in any way who was challenging me from across the aisle, but actually one of the closest thought partners and supporters I had in the way that I already thought about the world. So that was a really important lesson for me um, in the fact that you can sort of find your closest allies in thought and in policy really anywhere. Um, and Richard is, is someone of just the highest integrity, um, in addition to being a, a totally brilliant thinker. So we uh, came to know each other over the course of my time at CNAS. I was working uh, in our Asia shop. Richard had, of course, worked on Asia in government, followed Asia issues closely. We were both increasingly thinking about the role of China on the international stage. And at the time, there were kind of very high-pitched debates going on about what China was doing on the international stage. This was the last few years of the Obama administration. We were watching China in particular build artificial islands across the South China Sea, increasingly put pressure on Japan and the East China Sea. And we would increasingly hear folks on both sides of the aisle say that China was seeking to overturn the international order. And it was a proclamation that was sort of getting so worn out as to lose its meaning in some ways. Because while it was decidedly true that Beijing was doing all sorts of things that were highly objectionable and ran counter to goals and objectives of U.S. foreign policy. It also wasn't as simple as China seeking to overturn the international order wholesale. And Richard and I sort of connected over the idea that by using verbiage like that, we were really obscuring the problem, um, which was something much more complicated. It was a great power competitor who was using a vast toolkit across a bunch of different areas in many novel ways to kind of probe the boundaries of the fabric of the international order in ways that were far more difficult to counter than a simple assault on it would be. And that sort of drove us to want to write something together to explore the fact that this behavior, this set of problems was highly differentiated by domain, by geography, and it became the National Interest Article. Richard, from your perspective, how did you 
pull together this co-authored piece? How do you think about working with junior partners generally? I guess in this respect, I didn't consider Mira a junior partner. I mean, if you looked at an org chart, okay, but I, I thought about this as an intellectual endeavor of equals, if not Mira bringing more to the table than me. And the impulse for me in writing this particular article, I, I'll, a lot of times I, I will be animated to write something because there's something about the current debate that bugs me. And as Mira was saying, there was this, the debate was basically pretty binary. Either China accepts the international order and might be a responsible stakeholder in it at some point, or it's trying to overthrow the international order. And, you know, if you're going to get the prescription right, then you got to get the diagnosis right. And uh, so I thought the diagnosis wasn't exactly right. And we agreed on that. So as I recall, well, I just say the other thing when it comes to writing is I tend to, no matter who like starts a draft, I tend to have a very heavy hand in sort of moving things around according to like whatever my, my style and stuff like that. So the one thing I sometimes worry about is, you know, if somebody has drafted all or part of something and then sending them back something that looks like someone vomited all over the page because of, you know, suggestions and edits and all these other kinds of things. And I remember calling Mira and telling her kind of, you know, all right, here's the thing. And she, and she was like, look, I, I don't scare easily. Send me this and let's make this as good as we can. Which it was really a great <laughs> reaction. So, you know, I think, well, one, whether someone is senior or junior or whatever to you, if you can produce something that is better than you doing it all alone, then I think that's worth the endeavor. And um, I think what one shouldn't do is, which one sees in Washington sometimes, is have the junior person write something for you put your name on it, no two words in the same order are from your pen. And at best, they get like a firm handshake if you ever see them on the street. That I don't think is, is a good way to do things. But no, I, I, would, I really encourage people to look for collaborations and don't worry too much about the rank of one person or another on the author's line. Mary, you alluded before to the fact that you and Richard were coming to this topic at least nominally from different sides of the political spectrum. And I'd love to hear more about how both of you think about bipartisanship when it comes to China. It feels to me like there's aspects of the China issue on which there is potential for great bipartisanship, especially things around tech competition or human rights. But then there's different aspects of the relationship, you know, around trade or immigration or defense spending that where there tends to be more division along partisan lines. And in the time in which you both have been focused on this as a topic of foreign policy, what has bipartisanship, and I would say both maybe in Congress, but even sort of in the American public looked like on China? And how is it different today than when you guys wrote that article in 2016? I'm happy to lead off and, and uh, let Richard correct the record. I think that somewhat remarkably, China policy and Indo-Pacific policy has actually remained quite bipartisan. I think that a lot of that bipartisanship was actually starting to form, had started to form at the point that Richard and I were writing together. That was obviously because 
leadership on both sides of the aisle could see an increasingly tense situation in Asia and increasingly globally in which a number of US interests, values, shared interests and values seem to be at risk. And frankly, it it took quite a lot of great work, including by organizations like CNAS, to ensure that the diagnosis of the problem, as well as potential policy options, remain bipartisan as that period unfolded. But whether it was at the end of the Obama administration, at the height of the Trump administration, or now um, in the first year of the Biden administration, I think many of the folks that Richard and I are lucky to count as friends and as colleagues who work on Indo-Pacific policy, both in and out of government, tend to stay in close touch with one another on both sides of the aisle, tend to share ideas, tend to have a great deal of respect for the policies that everyone is trying to drive forward, but also are pretty skillful at helping each other do better where we need to, pointing out where things could be stronger, where we might be falling down a little bit and uh, sort of giving each other the nudges that we need to try to keep the policy on course, whether that's from the inside or the outside. And I note this because I do think at a time of such intense political polarization on Congress, in Congress, as well as um, throughout the population, it's actually pretty remarkable um, that there is the extent of bipartisan consensus there has been on issues, as you say, Zoe, ranging from alliances, to regional security, to technology policy. And there are, of course, exceptions. But I do think now, um, from the perspective of someone sitting in government for the first time, that persistent bipartisanship is something that is really important that needs to continue to be protected. Yeah, I would just add that China policy is unfortunately one of the only areas of bipartisan potential these days. I mean, close your eyes and think of another issue. I don't know. Supreme Court justices or Obamacare or uh, inflation or taxes or immigration or whatever, you're going to be pretty hard pressed to find areas where you're going to get significant bipartisan cooperation. But on China, you can. And there's it's both for the professional reasons that Mira talked about, where, you know, the debates tend to be within sort of schools of thought rather than, you know, Republicans think this and Democrats think this on China policy. But also, frankly, a shared sense of threat brings Americans closer together. It did during the Cold War. It is now during China. That's not a reason to go out and find yourself an adversary. But if you're sort of stuck with one, then there's a lot that one can do across party lines under a broad umbrella of China competition. And so you see things that on their face don't look very relevant to China. Industrial policy, spending money on semiconductors, domestic innovation measures, you know, maybe at some point, some sort of strategic immigration policy, even things like that, that are, you know, wouldn't be, they'd never move, but couched as necessary to deal with China, you can get support across both sides of the aisle, because there's this worry about the challenge that Beijing poses to us. But Zoe, you're right, too, in that there's pain points there. And there's some things like we don't have a strategic immigration policy now, and it doesn't look like we'll have one anytime soon. We certainly don't have a trade policy now. It doesn't look like we'll have anyone one anytime soon. You know, on some of the defense, not just spending, but how we spend our defense dollars and things like that. It's when we get to the hard stuff that at this point, the China challenge hasn't broken through the inability to come together, but on a whole lot of other things it has. 
I want to stay on this point for a little bit because Richard, you just published a piece in Foreign Affairs about a very related topic. Uh, would love to hear more about what you're trying to communicate in that piece. But it sounds like you are saying that the administration is lacking a bit of an objective when it comes to thinking about China competition in a strategic way and as an ends and, and not just means. No, that's right. So, and it, of course, it's not just for the administration. I, I, I referred to Washington to mean including the administration, but I don't see a lot out of the Congress either that is really specifying what all this activity and urgency and alarm and money and everything is directed to achieve in the long run. And so there's a lot that's happening under the umbrella of China, or we need to do this with partners and allies because of China, or we need to do this at home because of China. But there really isn't a clear objective. And there has been more or less clear objectives of China policy in the past. So you can go all the way back to the Clinton administration, where at least the long-term theory of the case was that through deep engagement with China, we would see, and the rise of a middle class and the WTO and all these other things that you would see the, you know, the liberalization of China over the long run, maybe even the democratization of China. The Bush administration aimed to trying to turn China into a responsible stakeholder in the international system, not liberal at home, but more invested in the rules. You know, some of these things have sort of fallen by the wayside, but nothing's really replaced them explicitly. I think if you sort of squint your eyes and look in implicitly, you can see objectives embedded in a lot of the things that we're doing. But I think it's a particularly confusing to some of our foreign partners who are, you know, don't want to be enlisted in an anti-China block, some undifferentiated, you know, you got to pick between us. Now they, you know, they're, they're, they're common refrain, don't make us choose, don't make us choose. They want benefits from all sides and who can blame them. And so it is worth spend, spelling out for that reason and other reasons as well, I think, what the objective is of US-China policy. So the formulation that I used in this little article was ensuring that China is either unable or unwilling to overturn the regional and global order. And that's pretty abstract, but it excludes some of the other possibilities that one might imagine regime change, forcible regime change, or I don't know, regime change through some soft measures or, or responsible stakeholderism or, you know, long-term liberalization or partnership. And so at least as a starting point, mapping out that, and of course, if anyone can be absolutely free to disagree with that articulation of a desired end state, but if that's not it, my question would be, so what's yours? You know, like, this may not be right, but at least it's something. <laughs> so what, what, would be, what would you propose in its absence? So Mira, to not force you to answer Richard's question directly, can you give us sort of what you think the guiding principle of American engagement in the broader Indo-Pacific region is? I appreciate uh, that that kind uh, gesture. To I will say, you know, I'm I am not going to sort of prejudice the number of strategic documents that are under development and at advanced stages uh, by the Biden administration. As as Richard, you know, mentions in his piece, um, there are many important statements of strategy and policy that are forthcoming in short order. But I will say that I think Richard is hitting on a really important question, and I'll just add one important reason why that is. You know, he's identified the fact that 
um, you know, you need to have a strategic objective so that your allies and partners in the world feel like they can come along with you. Um, so they know if your objectives are aligned and, you know, that they can do the work necessary to implement a strategy together. But another reason for it is that strategic objectives play important disciplining functions within the US government, right? Especially when it comes to a challenge like China, which we define as a competitor and we define the US-China relationship as primarily a competitive one. It's hard to know how we would bound our spending or prioritize our efforts or channel our human, political, or financial resources if we don't know that we're rowing towards a specific end state. So this is all to say um, that, again, without uh, any particular comment on the policy of the day, I think it's uh, an important piece to read. And it really is a message to strategists and policymakers, not just of 2021, but um, in all eras, would do well to uh, heed Richard's advice. I will say on uh, the question of the Indo-Pacific, there have been a couple and one in particular recent statements of policy that I think will here continue to resonate over the coming weeks and months. Importantly, there was a great speech by the Secretary of State that took place in Jakarta in mid-December, in which Secretary Blinken laid out in broad strokes uh, the United States' approach to engagement in the Indo-Pacific, identifying objectives that included a free and open region a connected region, a resilient region, and a secure region. And I would commend the speech um, because he does explain quite a bit more about what he means by those terms and what the United States is doing to pursue each. But the thing that I would hold up in pointing to the speech is the fact that this is an extremely affirmative approach. Um, you know, we've just been talking about the sort of realities of strategic competition with China. But what Secretary Blinken presented in Indonesia was a vision that really wasn't motivated primarily about China, although China was very much mentioned and, and sort of not shied away from. It was a speech that laid out a positive vision for a future of Asia that the United States sees itself as having a fundamental stake in and in which he believes our partners and allies see similar stakes for themselves. So I think it's just important to acknowledge that this sort of vision and reality of strategic competition with China can sit comfortably alongside something that is not just bilaterally US-China focused, not just about competition or whatever your objective is, but is actually about a positive set of uh, defined objectives that don't need to be defined in terms of the competitor, and as a result, may be more pluralistic in who they invite as partners. That is a great, although unintentional, callback to our first episode with Ali Wine, who was talking about great power competition, and this is his horse that we shouldn't be defined by our competition. We should instead put our good ideas into the world. But Richard, it seems to me that whether the Biden administration has a strategy on China or not, what they do is defined primarily by the dysfunction of Congress and our inability of Congress to get things done. There was a China bill that was sort of sitting in between houses right now that had some competitive elements for China in it. Do you think that Congress may be able to lead on this issue? In some ways, yes. I think Congress, if you look historically, not only on China, but other things, Congress has been a leader on human rights they're just different equities when it comes to executive branching the Congress, but on human rights, sometimes on sanctions, 
Congress is usually even more willing than executive branch to jump to economic sanctions based on malign behaviors of any anybody. Some of the more positive and creative sides, I mean, depending on what one thinks about industrial policy, um, you know, the Congress, at least, I think, quite arguably has led the way on identifying where we would spend federal dollars on innovation measures or where we lack the technological capacity at home to compete effectively with China. So in areas like that, I think Congress can lead. The big gaping hole in our Asia policy is trade, of which we don't have a trade policy and are unlikely to have any meaningful trade policy, at least, I guess, until the midterm elections. And that's not because the Asia policymakers don't understand that this is important. It's because you've got domestic politics. And so at some point, if we're going to rectify that, it's going to have to be led from the administration. I don't think there's any example of a Congress just on its own deciding to try to march out on some sort of affirmative trade agenda. They can do the coercive side. They can come along and support an affirmative trade agenda, but that's going to have to be led by the executive branch you know, if and when they get to the point that they believe it's doable. Question for both of you on areas of potential cooperation with China. Richard, this is something you sort of gesture towards a little bit in your article. It seems to me like there are a couple topics that, that often come up as uh, areas of potential collaboration, like public health and climate change and things like that. And would love to hear what both of you think about the areas that are most ripe for productive work with China and whether those are diminishing over time. I think there's kind of a category difference here. If you close your eyes and say, where are there overlapping interests with the United States and China? I don't know, for example, stopping a global pandemic that is killing people all over the world, that is destroying our economies in which no one has any interest in it spreading and everyone has an interest in it stopping. This is sort of like the media hurtling at the earth, right? Except there's, there's not been any co cooperation at all. It's just been become another sort of vector of competition, vaccine diplomacy, accusations about whether this started deliberately or not, or accidentally, you know, all of these kinds of things. So... What explains that? And what does that tell us about the opportunities for cooperation? Well, it's not a great sign for cooperation in general. But I do think that there's a difference between some issues that have domestic resonance and issues that don't. So if you're talking about nonproliferation, North Korea, the prospects of cooperation are much higher than on something like the pandemic, where the very legitimacy of governments in the United States and in China are turning on their ability to, one, be not blamed by their people for being responsible, and two, having someone else to blame for being the way the world is. The big question is, where does climate change fit into that? Because it's got obviously some domestic resonance, but not as much as a pandemic uh, that we're in. And so is there scope on, on climate change? There, I think maybe the, the, the issue is a little bit different because it's just not clear to me that cooperation between the United States and China is necessary for the United States and China to do meaningful things on climate change. I could see U.S. and China working in parallel, making parallel commitments on emissions, for example or even productively competing on environmental green technology, you know, sitting down in a trusted way across the table and working out kind of a big environmental pact 
that I think would be much harder. And I don't know how necessary that actually is. So I guess that's a kind of a differentiated answer to the question. But what we often hear is, well, it's a mixture of cooperation and competition. So we can't let the competition infect the areas of cooperation because we have these overlapping interests. And, you know, but at the same time, we can't let our desire to combat, you know, climate change and stuff interfere with our with our competition with China. Okay, yeah, I got it. Like no one's really talking about dealing that anyway. It's the, but the issue is what what issues do you really reasonably think there's a chance of cooperation? And what is going to be the the resonance of those issues in each of the countries? Mira, we're doing a lot of cooperation in the Indo-Pacific outside of the China context with India, Japan, and Australia in what has come to be known as the Quad. Can you talk about what the aims of our participation in this sort of loose group is and, and where you see it going in the future? Quad co- cooperation, I'm happy to report, is markedly easier than anything that Richard just reviewed in the U.S.-China bilateral context. And that is because the Quad consists of two longstanding American allies uh, and a really strong partner in India. It's a grouping who we found, at least in the first year of the Biden administration's time has really come in a lot of ways. Um, And I think there are a few reasons for that. But just to review briefly, uh, the Quad was originally started in the wake of the Indian Ocean tsunami, actually uh, during the Bush administration, the W. Bush administration. It sort of proceeded in fits and starts over the course of the years, with some of our partner countries occasionally balking um, because they were concerned about being part of a configuration that would be viewed as anti-China. But it was very effectively um, rehabilitated under the Trump administration at the foreign minister's level when a number of different working groups and meetings among foreign ministers took place. And there was no accident around this. Of course, the strategic environment in the Indo-Pacific inspired it in a lot of ways, of course, that included, but was not exclusively about China's increasing assertiveness in the region. But the Quad found that once all of these countries were sort of in the room together, once the foreign ministers were talking on a regular basis, when senior officials were working in this Quad format, that they had quite a lot not only to talk about, but potentially to do together that wasn't about responding to or reacting to China, but that was really about what they sought to do together. So this takes us back to kind of the idea of being primarily or, or at least substantially focused on uh, positive cooperation in the region. When uh, President Biden took office uh, last January, he basically decided to try to make a run at kicking the quad up to the leader level for the first time, which basically meant calling all of his counterparts in quad countries and inviting them to the first ever leader level quad summit last March. We managed to hold two of them last year, one in person and one virtual. And I think over the course of that year, we sort of tried to walk the walk on the fact that this wasn't simply about China's role in the region. This wasn't some throwback to a NATO alliance in Asia. This was a new configuration that is really attempting to kind of meet the problems of the day in the Indo-Pacific. So since then, and, and over the course of this first year at the leader level, the Quad has principally been focused on responding to COVID-19 and cooperating on global health security. It's been focused on climate change, focused on critical and emerging technologies. 
and is now going to increase cooperation in space, cyberspace, and on infrastructure. The leaders certainly do talk about regional security issues and other security issues of concern when they get into a room together. But what's really actually, to just have a cheesy aside for a minute, um, quite inspiring uh, to be sort of a staffer in the room um, is to see how much genuine like-mindedness and excitement about the potential for cooperation really fuels this endeavor at the highest levels. Just to be sort of candid about it, one of the, the big sort of strategic importances of the Quad is the fact that it has tied us more closely to India and two of our closest allies more closely to India in a set of cooperative efforts that Delhi is enthusiastic about, is an incredible partner in, and is, has, has in many ways led the way on. And that's really sort of a strategic sea change from what we would have seen even a few years ago. So this is all to say that the Quad is absolutely a strategic configuration, but it is kind of an exemplar of how the Biden administration sees its positive vision for the Indo-Pacific, what it means to do like-minded cooperation that's not against anyone or anything, but actually for some things. And we're looking forward over the course of the next year and beyond to kind of fleshing out some of the promise uh, that we saw in this first year that the Quads had at the leader level. I think you really have to hand it to the administration to one for picking up the baton from the Trump administration on this issue, and then two, really operationalizing it in a major and creative new way. I mean, the Chinese certainly helped in this endeavor through their wolf warrior diplomacy and, and their aggressiveness over the past couple of years. So, I mean, the State Department should probably send Xi Jinping a fruit basket to thank him because there are things that are possible like within the quad that wouldn't have been even three years ago. But that didn't make those things happen. It just made them possible. And, you know, the vaccine initiative is a perfect example of the kind of creative work that the administration has been able to put into that. Shifting gears a little bit, both of you have worked on policy issues from within government as a practitioner and then also from outside of government, from the vantage point of academia and, and think tanks. And Mira, I mean, you in particular, you've written several books over the course of your career. You talked a little bit about how it sounded like at one point you you thought about becoming an academic and, and going down that path. I'm curious how that work on these issues from a academic and sort of theoretical perspective has influenced the way that you now approach policymaking now that you're sort of in a decision-making seat and whether or not you sometimes think about like, okay, how are analysts and historians going to look at this decision or, or is that is that not usually top of mind? Yeah, it's a great question. It's actually one I've been reflecting on a lot lately. Um, and, you know, also kind of falls under the theme or very much falls under the theme of mentorship. Last month, my academic advisor and academic mentor, uh, Robert Jervis, passed away at the age of 81. And he was one of the most extraordinary international relations thinkers of all time. Um, and he will remain as such indelibly. And part of the reason he was so extraordinary was that he was not just an incredible thinker, but was an incredible person. And so really kind of managed to leave his mark on this legion of students by not only teaching them how to think, but sort of showing them how to be. But I sort of have found in government, or rather, and I have found in government, that Bob Jervis's work, which I knew as a graduate student to be absolutely fundamental, informative, and important, 
is actually so much more relevant to what I do on a day-to-day basis than almost anybody else that I read as a political science graduate student or drew upon when I wrote those couple of books before coming into government. And it is just two. I appreciate the credit for several, but that's going to take me a while. Two more than I've written, just pointing that out. (laughs) And the reason for that, you know, is as follows. Obviously, a lot of political science and international relations is not attempting to make predictions or describe day-to-day patterns of foreign policymaking. A lot of international relations seeks to describe interactions among states that form the basis of international politics, but often operates at kind of the structural level. And the reason that Bob Jervis's work turns out to be kind of more relevant than ever in my life, and I think to policymakers in general, is that Jervis understood the fundamental kind of humanness of the foreign policymaker endeavor, foreign policymaking endeavor in ways that many academics do not. He drew upon social psychology and work on signaling in economics and in other fields to explain why psychological biases can interfere in decision-making, why countries may muddle their diplomatic messages even when they have the best incentives in the world to try to figure out how to understand one another. So in many ways, his body of work under exposed the fundamental frailties that are always at work in foreign policymaking and encouraged us not to try to overcome them, but to understand them so that we could kind of do our best to work within an environment that was fundamentally human. And I think uh, that just sort of holds more resonance for me than it ever has before. And for anyone who might just be coming up in the field of international relations or thinking about going into policymaking someday, Jervis's work is just a wonderful place to start. He really just takes you down an extraordinary path of uh, decision-making and international relations that will be relevant for a very long time to come. Before we head to our final segment, I just sort of wanted to circle back on something you both talked about earlier. You talked about how mentorship challenged you to think in new ways or sort of expand the way you think about foreign policy and how the conflict between different schools of thought on China made everyone smarter and made the debate better. What's one area where either your mentor or someone who is a peer who really challenged you changed the way you thought about foreign policy or maybe even proved you wrong? I don't really have a great example of I thought X, but a mentor said Y, and he turned out to be right. Although I'm sure there's millions of those examples that I could come up with. To me, I think there's a a different point, maybe, which is that you never stop needing mentors. (laughs) So Rich Armitage, who I worked for fairly briefly when he was Deputy Secretary of State, is been my great mentor. He's just a great man and American and wise, and he's done everything. And, you know, I'm sure if he and I will find areas where we disagree on some policy questions or disagree on a career question, but by God, I want to know what he thinks, especially if it's before I have to make a big decision. And if I you know, on the intellectual side, on the policy type side, if I say something or write something that he thinks is wrong, that that would, I would want to know specifically why and that would make me 
think twice. I may still do it, but I, but I, but it stretches your thinking that way. And then everybody needs mentors and to have a, a, a perspective, not just on all this intellectual policy stuff that we're talking about, but like, what should one do with one's life and career in this town, in this field? And, you know, some of it ends up getting a little philosophical. I mean, you know, how do you balance work and life and family and life has this kind of unfortunate pattern where you get the lessons after the experiences. If you could have the lessons before the experiences, it'd be a lot easier, but that's not the way it works. But with a mentor or with talking to someone who's been through some of those experiences, at least you can get the benefit of their lessons and see if that gives you some insight into what decision you're going to make before you go through whatever the experience is. And that's a good thing. And I know I, to this very day, will benefit enormously from some of those things. And frankly, I don't know, my experience is, I I guess, as, as I get older, my mentors, the conversations tend to be less about the kind of intellectual bull sessions about, you know, who do you think smart on this? Or, you know, if you were in charge, you know, what would we do about China? I mean, yeah, you know, there's that and that's important, but it's also about what do we do with this finite life of ours and what are we trying to leave and how do you divvy your time and efforts across a whole bunch of things that could be interesting and important. And that's not an easy task. Richard just answered that question so beautifully. Um, and, and characteristically, I would add, I like Richard, I find myself hard pressed to think of a time where sort of a, a mentor told me or challenged me as being wrong on something substantively, because that tends not to be the way I think that we would usually sort of debate or strengthen each other's arguments. But I do remember one time in which a mentor very usefully told me that I was about to be wrong about a life decision. And I changed my course of action as a result. And that was Richard. I was uh, debating (laughs) the possibility of taking a new job. Um, I no longer worked at CNAS. I was working at Yale Law School, which I absolutely loved. I loved my colleagues. I loved New Haven. I loved the work I was doing. But I had a job offer to join the Council on Foreign Relations, obviously an incredibly wonderful and prestigious think tank, the only think tank that uh, in foreign policy that has an office in New York. And I was about to give birth to my first child and therefore had a lot of incentives to stop commuting two and a half hours to get to work. And I called Richard sort of fretting about this possibility and said like, Oh, Richard, like, it's just coming at such a bad time. I couldn't possibly do this. I love my colleagues so much. I can't like make a shift right now. This doesn't make any sense. And he was like, you're out of your mind. You, you have to take this job. This is a great job. You'll miss your colleagues, but they will completely understand this is the right thing to do in this point in your life. And this is absolutely the right next career step for you. And when I step back and I look at where you've been the last 5 years, here's how it's all been leading to this. And I kind of just needed that shot in the arm at what was actually a really important time in my life for someone who knew me well and had been my boss to give me permission to do something that was absolutely the right thing for me to do. But with a little bit of distance and reflection that he could provide, 
I sort of got tremendous relief in in being able to take that decision. Um, and I'm very grateful to him for that, as well as lots of other unvarnished advice I've gotten over the years. So on that uplifting note, let's turn to our final segment where we talk about the issues, either cultural or political, that we are following out in the world. Zoe, why don't you kick us off this week? Sure. So I've been following the uh, recent acquisition of Activision Blizzard by Microsoft, which Microsoft purchased for like $68 billion, which is a crazy amount of money. And it's a big... you know, I think it's interesting because it's a big bet on gaming as an important market going forward. But not just gaming, it's sort of a bet on virtual environments, on the metaverse. And Microsoft has not historically led in that space. You know, Tencent, Sony have had, you know, bigger stakes in gaming companies in the past. So it will be interesting to see how Microsoft tries to position itself. And I think also from a regulatory perspective, there's a big open question about whether or not this deal is going to spark any antitrust inquiries and to what extent. More generally, digital markets should or should not be subjected to the same or different guidelines, you know, from regulators. So it's an interesting deal that I'm keeping an eye on. Richard, what are you following this week? Well, I'd like to watch more football than I have been able to, but I am following the playoffs. And I have a contention, which is that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers may well repeat as Super Bowl champions. And by the way, one of the best decisions I ever made is to throw in the towel and root for Tom Brady rather than chafe at Tom Brady only to find him win at the end. It just helps to sort of mentally and psychologically join you know, a winning side. However, my, that's not my contention. My contention is that if they do repeat as champions, it is worth remembering that in week 15, the New Orleans Saints, my hometown New Orleans Saints defeated, not only defeated, but shut out the Bucks, And so by impeccable force of logic, the New Orleans Saints, despite their record, and despite the fact they didn't make the playoffs, will in fact be the best team in American football. Amazing. Uh, so this week I'm following Taiwanese largesse around the globe. Uh, it's been recently reported that Taiwan was expected to launch a $1 billion loan program for Lithuanian businesses. This comes on the heels of China's boycott of goods from Lithuania and even boycott of goods with Lithuanian components. China imposed the boycotts because Lithuania opened what amounts to an embassy for Taiwan in its capital. This side of the Atlantic, Taiwan is supporting Guatemalan lobbying efforts in the United States to the tune of $900,000. Nicaragua recently changed positions on Taiwan to shore up its ties with Beijing, and Honduras may be making the same move in the coming months. With the rise of policies such as the Belt and Road Initiative and the Global Magnitsky Act, more of the national security policy is moving out of the bunker and into the boardroom, and foreign policy thinkers should adjust accordingly. Mira, what are you following this week? Well, I work at NSC and I have a two and a half year old. So my life consists of following. That's what she's following. <laughs> interagency process and frozen videos, not necessarily in that order. Uh, but I have found that at this incredibly sort of intense and chaotic time in my life, uh, it's really important to read a little bit of fiction every night before bed to just kind of cleanse the mind and reset. Um, and even if I only make it through a few pages, I sleep so much better. I wake up happier in the morning if I've done it. So I've read a few great books lately. I've become um, you know, much more 
glued to the Washington Post recommendations because my reading time is so precious. I'm currently reading a beautiful book by Amor Towels called The Lincoln Highway. I've loved everything else that Amor Towels has ever written. And this is no exception, just crisp, clear prose. It's an incredibly thick book, but don't be intimidated. You'll kind of fly through it if you choose to pick it up. And a couple of others that I've enjoyed recently are The Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead, which is a wonderful uh, historical fiction work about a female aviator. And I'm about to turn to John Lucari's final novel when I finish this current one. So with that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, follow Richard at R.H. Fontaine, and Mira at Mira Rap Hooper. If you are a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, please be sure to follow the link in the show notes. And thank you to everyone who has sent in your name in the recent weeks. We're super excited to feature you soon. This week's episode is brought to you by the HR department at number 10 Downing Street, who said COVID-19 can kill 170,000 of our citizens, but by God, it will not kill Wine Time Fridays. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.